Hello everyone, morning with Shantari. Welcome back. Today we have Laura Bennett with us and Laura is a senior healthcare executive in the DC metro area in United States. Laura was recently inducted into the Hall of Fame for the Federal Health, um, Federal Health IT 100 Award joining a distinguished group of individuals from government and industry who are making an impact going above and beyond driving innovation Challenging conventional wisdom, driving positive outcomes, and giving back to the larger community. Ms. Bennett is a knowledgeable and experienced leader in the business development and marketing sector with over 12 years of experience. As a diplomatic, proactive, motivated, and growth oriented business development executive, Laura has a proven track record of success in sales and marketing. With her hands on approach to business development, strategy, and marketing, Laura has tremendously excelled, having executed profitable and effective marketing campaigns, as well as multi-million dollar results for companies and organizations served. Laura is also a keto high-performance coach and business strategies during her non-working hours. So hi, Laura. Welcome to our podcast. How are you doing? Uh, thank you for having me, Syed. I really do appreciate it, and I'm honored to be joining your podcast on empowering women and discussions around the world's peace. Um, so can you tell our listeners something about yourself, your journey, and how you ended up here where you are right now? Sure. So I um, lived in Maryland all my life here on the East Coast in the United States. And I went to some very good schools for high school and college. And then I found my job online in my current market off of Craigslist. Um, at the time when I was uh, job searching, it was a good job platform that was underutilized. And so I started working in the DC area and I started working in the areas of uh, Homeland Security. Um, Department of Homeland Security was an initially a newly instituted, newly minted government agency. And I worked in that sector for a couple of years, and then I made my way into healthcare because I'm very passionate about improving um, one's ability to be healthy, to enjoy life. You know, if you're healthy, you are able to enjoy life so much more. You have more security. Um, and I, I really think they are, are very much uh, strongly linked. Uh, so since then, I've been supporting healthcare initiatives in this area. It does have a a nationwide impact, but um, I've been in this ar arena and, and, and very much enjoy uh, working in the field that I do. And part of the ability for me to kind of traverse the universe in this industry has been due to volunteering. I've partnered, I've volunteered a lot for a lot of DC nonprofits. Uh, Women in Homeland Security is a group I supported for many years. I've also worked on the HEMS National Capital Area Chapter. They have local chapters and chapters throughout the United States where health IT professionals get together and talk about um, health IT initiatives. And building my network and maintaining and nurturing, it really helped me a lot in getting to where I am today. Um, and I also think interpersonal skills are very important when you're working in these industries and I've put a lot of attention into 
my interpersonal skills, the soft skills that, that get you through the halls and the doorways of the corporate and the government halls and agencies. So, you know, I think a lot of it comes down to the work you're willing to put in and then your ability to build a network and then to learn and gather the knowledge and then apply it. And that's really is what helped me get to where I am today. Um, so did you always wanted to work uh, for in, in the health department or was it a decision which was involved as you grew up and experienced more things in your life? I would say it, it's been more around the experiences in my life. I started working in the nonprofit sector and a lot of that was around social justice and improving um, economic um depressed areas in various cities. And I think when you're working in a nonprofit industry and you're working for acts of social justice and movements, um, the work is long and hard. You don't see the results of your work. And, and at that time I was, I was very young and wanted to see immediate results. And so I moved more into the commercial industry where depending on what I was doing, you could see a faster turn. And so I supported, um, when I moved into the commercial industry, I, I supported initiatives that honored um, minority women in technical fields and then minority women in research and science fields. And I felt that was very important, you know, having these annual awards events and you can see like an annual result of your actions of, of people being uplifted in their, in, in the STEM area. And I've always been very passionate about health and nutrition and food. And I'm a foodie. I love food. I love to cook. I love to enjoy food from all around the world. And I love trying new cuisines, um, and, and really getting into the flavors of foods. Um, especially from Asia and the Mediterranean area. Those are some of my favorite cuisines. And so I felt that, you know, people having access to good food was very important, but then also access to healthcare. And it just gets broader than that. So if we're paying for quality healthcare services, if people have access to quality healthcare, if people have access to nutritious and delicious food, um, those areas really speak to me, and that's why I moved into the health sector. And then on the side, I'm a, I'm a keto coach, and I run a keto group in, in Facebook. I do it all for free. It's, it's volunteer. It has 6,000 members. And we talk about the keto diet and nutrition and, and um, you know, what do you eat to feel satisfied? What do you eat to be healthy? What do you eat to maintain stable blood sugar. So I, I still continue to volunteer a lot and, you know, give a lot of my time in this area. Cause I just think if you're going to eat something, that food should be helping you to be healthier. And I think it really starts from the foundation of access to healthy food and eating the right foods. So for your keto program, is it more woman focused? Like you said, you have 6,000 members. Are most of them women or is it a balance between women and men? And the other thing I wanted to ask was, you know how you mentioned that in healthcare, you focused on women um, ad advancement because you felt that women were not represent represented properly in medical science. And 
I tend to agree because uh, I was reading an article where they were saying um, many of the medical devices, um, when they were in a research phase, they are researched on men instead of a woman. And uh, a, a small example will be in COVID-19 pandemic, um, they invented a PPNE, uh, which you were supposed to wear if you were a nurse uh, catering to a COVID-19 patient. But many of them were uh, many of them were designed for men. So when women started wearing them, they started getting bruises on their face. Um, so what do you think? How has medical science improved in giving women more um, representation in, in in the whole industry? What, what do you think about that? No, those are both great questions. So I'll, I'll answer the keto question quickly. It's it's open to both women and men. I, I don't discriminate in who can join and who can participate, but the women tend to be more vocal in the group. Um, and, and so for advancement in medical medicine, you are correct that, you know, the primary template that medicine has followed, uh, modern medicine, is basically the Caucasian mm. male. Um, so there's also different ethnicities and different physical builds that are not getting compensated into this model. And then women, of course. Um, so it's true. You know, if, if I needed a CPAP mask to take care of sleep apnea, is it more designed based on one template or is it more individualized? And, and that's very important in medicine and having that applicability um, to a person's situation um, and having things designed by women, having things designed by different ethnical groups, different uh, uh, ethnotypes, is really very important. But when the healthcare system here in the United States is really built on volume. And so the more patients you can see, the more claims you get paid, the more money you make. And uh, when it comes to Medicare and Medicaid, and those are two kind of like state and national wide run healthcare programs, you know, you only get an X amount of time to see the patient and you can only address certain topics. So if I come to you for two problems, like a heart problem and then a sleep problem, I might need to make another appointment. And then after I see you about the sleep problem, then I have to probably go get a test done or get a specialist to assess the situation too. So Medicine in America is very compartmentalized and then it's very compressed. Um, so the ability to really have advances in medicine that address different physical statures, types, sizes, and shapes, and moving beyond just a template is very difficult because of the way we're, we're built up. I think there's a lot more attention on the need to address you know, a woman who might be 5'7 and 150 pounds as opposed to a man who might be 6'3 and 190 pounds that, you know, when you look at medical devices, you might be dealing with two different situations. But, um, you know, let's take the vaccines, for instance, you know, the dosages, the dosages are, you know, a, a set parameter 
And, you know, what you might need for your elderly grandmother could be very different for a 35-year-old man. But we haven't gotten to that, that space yet in medicine. Right now, we're built for volume. Exactly. I totally understand that. And, and as you said, that it's built on volume. Um, do you think the manufacturers uh, care about whether they would be any equipment or any um, tool which they are manufacturing? Do you think the manufacturers care about that, whether they would be suitable for women? Or do you think the decision makers uh, sitting up at the top, they are also men and that's why they don't um, give much regard to the women's need? And building onto that, do you think... Uh, uh, in, in, in many of the industries, and medical is one of them where you have worked healthcare, um, do you think in order to better represent women over there and in order to improve women's working conditions, um, the first step should be to appoint women as leaders over there? Well, and it depends on the socio-political pressures. Um, I think just because you appoint a woman to a leadership role doesn't necessarily mean things will improve. At, at the end of the day, you know, power structures are set up for specific reasons, and it doesn't matter who you have in power. Um, if the goal is the same, it's going to stay the same. And if it's been that way for a while, it's not going to change overnight. Um, and so in my industry, a lot of women get to a certain point in the corporate structure and then they leave and then they start their own companies. I know a lot of colleagues of mine have gone on to start their own companies and um, it's just because they don't want to deal with the machine, so to speak. You get a company at a certain size, um, you know, you have like PepsiCo, you have Lockheed Martin, you have all of these very large companies, Car Cargill, Monsanto, Bayer, they, they become so set in a way that the culture might be a certain way. And so I think there's a lot of cultural change happening, especially in the United States. But when you look at governmental structures, I, I think they can be more set and you can appoint women in the roles, but if they're always deputy or assistant, um, they're not going to have a real impact. Um, and so sometimes it's better to make changes from the outside. And it, it really, it, it can really depend on where you are globally, but it can also depend on where you are um, in a company per se. You know, in Europe, women's rights are going to be a lot different than women's rights in the United States as opposed to South America. Um and, and we've seen a lot of uh, women leaders emerge, you know, um, and, and that's certainly a good thing. But I, I think we need to continue to, to move in that fashion where we see uh, more diverse leadership and more representation in um, corporate and also government structures. Um, so, as you said, many women you have seen in your life in healthcare industry that they either leave or they start something on their own. Um, so for, for you, um, you have come a long way and now you are one of the successful uh, people in the field. Um, how easy or difficult was it for you to reach over here in, in something which is uh, 
traditionally male dominated well and that's a good point i think a lot more women get more into medicine because it's an industry that is focused on taking care of people nurturing when you look at um just biologically how we're designed and what our purpose is um you know medicine is taking care of a patient taking care of somebody nurturing and so i think we see a lot of women in medicine when you think about women in technology um it's a much smaller um, population. I have a friend that is in cybersecurity and she's the one woman on her team. It's, it's really dominated by, by men. So how do, you, how do you break those ceilings? And so, you know, for me, um, there were a lot of times when I was just the only woman and I'm still... I'm middle-aged and there's still not a lot of women. Uh, and it really depends on the company and the culture. Um, the company I happen to work for tends to be a lot more um, diverse and we do have a lot more women in, in senior positions, but uh, they tend to be um, more focused on customer service, sales, um, you know, program management. I don't see as many senior women in technical positions. Um, but there's a lot of women in healthcare and a lot of women in senior health positions. I think those universes have been easier to traverse than say, um, you know, cybersecurity companies or companies that really focus, uh, very hard on software development, for instance. Hmm. And, uh, do you think only hard work is required to be successful in, in these kind of fields or um, a person has to be a little more privileged as well. And when I say that I'm referring to the uh, poor, poorer, poorer nations or underdeveloped countries where women wants to get educated or women wants to have careers, but they cannot have it because of their own limitations set by the society and their culture. So do you think you would have been as successful as you are right now if you were born in a country uh, like Africa or Nigeria or Kenya? Well, so in, in well, Africa is, is huge. Um, so it depends on where we're talking. I think in more rural areas, you'll see women maybe um, – staying in more traditional roles. I am certainly feel very thankful and grateful for the privilege I have being born here in the time that I am and that I'm able to do the things that I need to do. I think the greatest tool for women's empowerment is financial independence and her ability to make enough money for herself to live and then potentially any children she might have. Um, so certainly I've been able to do that here and where I am. Um, I think education is very important and it can be very empowering. Um, you know, this podcast, for example, if it could be received by maybe a satellite inter internet connection in what we would say is a developing country and a young girl, 10 years old could hear this podcast. It could change her trajectory because it will feed her ideas that she's never heard before. So, um, you know, education again is, is very important. Um, 
you know, the ability to set up computer labs in areas where there's no technology, the ability to bring in an internet connection, which is your foundation, the ability to bring in um, printed books that have different perspectives from around the world can be game changing. And so I think education is the first step and then how you apply it. And then how do you create the opportunity so that someone can traverse out of a rural situation or can traverse out of a more economically limited area so that this person can go on and and get a job in an IT company or they've learned the skill of entrepreneurship so that they can start their own company and then help other people or employ other people, which lifts the boats for all, which, which helps people in, in many situations. So throughout your career, have you encountered any person like that from, and from person, I mean, any woman um, who came from a rural area or an underdeveloped country and you helped her stand on her feet or maybe helped her on her diet. Um, what was your experience if you had uh, any of such interaction with anyone? So I've met, um, I've made friends with people from around the world and I've, I've met someone from Bangladesh and this person moved to Australia. Now she's a, a mechanical engineer. Um, I don't know what her, her, her beginning story was, um, but she certainly lifted her family out of, out of where she came from. And now they live a, a pretty, I, what I would call is a middle-class life, you know, economic abundance, the ability to change jobs, move companies. Um, and, and this person's now living in Australia. Um, when I've worked on social justice of initiatives, it was more local to the area that I'm in. I, I do believe it's, it's very important that, you know, if we're going to do, if I'm going to do work and volunteer and help other people, it makes sense to start in my own backyard. Um, Cause that's the best application of my talent is locally. And I think sometimes when you have one country, you know, the U S does, have a lot of nonprofits and they go into developing countries or other areas around the world, you know, you're dealing, you're, you're looking to help a whole bunch of people that might not want your help. They might think that it's kind of imposing when you have a whole bunch of strangers coming in and and trying to tell you how you, how to do things. So I think it's best for us to start in our own backyards and then to expand outwards. Um, you know, Peace Corps is is a, a United States-based kind of volunteer um, service, and people that join that tend to go around the world, and then they'll work on projects in the areas that they that they work in. Um, my uncle was a doctor, Harvard educated. He went to Africa and became a doctor. Now, I don't know how he was culturally received in the areas that he did, but probably the services he provided helped people. Um, especially if they did not have access to modern medicine and they needed it. So it's, it's a little bit of a give and take. There's the pluses and the minuses. I always think it's better for folks that want to help others to start in their own backyard and then to kind of 
grow the presence. So I focus more locally in terms of my support. And then I haven't, from time to time, I'll, I'll mentor folks kind of on a ad hoc basis. Um, but when it comes to supporting NGOs, I will donate and contribute to that because I think it is important to um, bring education to people and, and help them to think of new things that they can do to improve their own lives and situations. Um, so for the people to change their own minds and situation, um, and you also said that uh, you were still in, you, you were involved in the past and you're still involved in so many social initiatives locally. So what are some of the issues or social issues which you see again and again and which you feel are now the norm instead of being an outlier? You know, that's a great question. Um, I think uh, political instability really brings a lot of the issues um, to the top. Um, you know, in the past year and a half, um, you know, healthcare and access to health and access to medicine has really come to the forefront because of the, the global situation we're in. And so I don't think it was always an outlier. Um, the need for medicine, the need for access to healthcare, but right now it's front and center. And a lot of people are not getting access to medicine. A lot of people are not getting access to um, information where they can make educated for themselves, make educated decisions for themselves. So I think right now, if we had to say what is one of the top primary issues, it's again, you know, equitable access to healthcare, you know, being able to get medicine, being able to utilize preventative services. Um, you know, for women, it, it really depends on where we're looking and the socio-political pressures in those countries. But I've always had the philosophy that, you know, if a country or a nation is very politically unstable or unstable, usually one of the first things you see go out the door is, is women's rights. Um, and I think you can measure the health of a society based on how women are treated and their issues are heard and their grievances. Um, so we can probably look to that um, and, you know, use that as a barometer for what we may see as success in one area as opposed to another. Um, so, do you think in these kind of political instability, do women support each other or, or, or not? Because I know many times, and I'm not saying all, not all men, but many times um, if something happens, men kick out women rights out of the door, the first thing, as you said. Um, but do you think women support each other, women have each other back or not? I, I really think it depends on where and when. Um, I know in, in the corporate environment, um, you know, the, the first women that have entered the corporate environment, it was just them. And so they had to um, adopt certain personas and energies to uh, 
basically make a make their space known. Um, I think now there's more coming together and teamwork. But in my industry, I've noticed that you know the the networking between and amongst men is very strong. And the network among women, in my personal opinion, is not as strong and has developed. I mean, because you're looking at, um, we're, we're basically looking at a system that is very male dominated and those networks have been in play for a very long time. And then, you know, successors have come in and continued to maintain those power structures. Um, when we look at community based networks, I think women can emerge very much, very quickly as leaders. Cause you know, in a community setting, you know, women might work together on food sources or, you know, bringing groups of people together for an event. Uh, so when we look at more of like social networks and familial networks, I think women many times are the leaders and they just kind of fall into that role. Um, but when we look at, you know, government and, and then I think companies, um, I, I think the networks are, amongst, are much more stronger for men than for women. And um, it's just, I just think it's the way it's happened. But that's my observation. It's, it's an opinion and, and other folks could have, have different opinions. But, you know, you have groups like uh, Women in Technology in the United States, made and created to kind of bring together, uh, women, um, and then women in Homeland Security and then women in healthcare. So these groups are set up to bring together and build those networks. And, um, it just depends on how you do it. And so it, it, it boils down to what are we looking at? And then, you know, where do women emerge as leaders? And, and very much so I, I feel it's, uh, much stronger in the family and the community and then the, the social, um, situations. So for all the women who are, um, stuck in, in some kind of an issue right now, um, especially related to the medicine industry or, or maybe, um, try, trying to fight for their rights or raise their voice, but they haven't taken the first step yet. What is one thing you're going to tell them that they should remember from this podcast and maybe that would help them motivate motivate enough to take the first step? I think motivation is very important. And where do you draw that motivation from? And then the discipline to to keep at it. Um, when it comes to things like this, like human rights or women's rights, it, it's really a long game fight. And so having the ability to see that the plan or the movement or what you're fighting for might extend beyond your involvement in it will really be very important. And then finding small successes to help be your fuel to keep you going. So, you know, let's say you set up a career event for women and you bring in companies and then you bring in elementary school kids to 
see the companies that are exhibiting, well, that maybe that 10 year old girl could see a technology company and she's inspired by that. And it sticks with her for the rest of her um, movement through education up to college. And maybe it inspires her to go to college and then get a job in that field. So I, I think finding the small successes and really making sure you pay attention to them and document them in your mind to be fueled, to keep you motivated and to add to your discipline. But then also seeing that this is something that's going to be happening for the long haul and seeing that this will go beyond you and then getting younger people involved so that they can keep it going. Um, I think would be keys for anybody that wants to fight for women's rights or to start a movement, so to speak, or maybe even start a company that focuses on teaching women technology education. It, it just depend, It boils down to motivation and the discipline to keep it going. That's really nice of you, and I feel you summarized it in a really simpler and meaningful manner that um, it's, it's just that at some point you have to take responsibility and you have to move forward and don't think about what other people say and just do your own thing, whatever makes you happy. And I t- totally agree with you. Um, with that being said, thank you so much, Laura, for being on our podcast. Um I really hope that your social initiative and your keto diet program uh, prosper and become a success in the future. Um, is is there any way our listeners can reach out to you? Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. These have been fantastic questions. I've really enjoyed talking with you. I would certainly love to come back in a year and, and talk with you again. Um, folks can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Laura Bennett is um, the name I'm under in the DC, Maryland area. Um, And then folks can find my uh, Facebook group and join that. It's called Keto High Protein Keto for Beginners Science Base, and and they can find me there. Um, So I I really look forward to staying in touch, and I I listen to some of your podcasts already it's it's off to a very strong start so i'm i'm happy to be a part of this legacy thank you thank you so much for your kind words really appreciate it thank you you too